Hi, on this episode of Real Time Truth, we're going to talk about the Bible. Can we trust it as God's Word? Is it reliable? Why do we ask that? So many people today say the Bible, oh, it's just a book of myths and fairy tales. It can't be believed. It's not reliable. On this episode, we're going to dive into why we can trust that the Bible is the Word of God and is the truth. Welcome to another episode of Real Time Truth. I'm Matthew McNeil. And I'm Pastor Kevin Brown. And we are so excited about today's episode because if there's any episode that we do that's kind of like the absolute reason that we are doing this podcast, today's show is it. Today we're talking about the Word. Can you believe it? It's the linchpin of our faith. And so that's ultimately the question is, can you believe, can you trust the Word of God? Yeah. You know, we live in a culture, Matthew, where... Um, there are all these people out there, and there are various people, from politicians to people in Hollywood mm -hmm. to uh, college professors who say that the Bible, I'm holding a Bible, mm -hmm. is a book of myths, that it's unreliable, that it's been passed down to us in an unreliable way. And the, the, the truth is, those claims are disingenuous. They're not true. What do you what do you mean by this claim they're disingenuous? Yeah. When you look, I'm not a mechanic. And so for me to begin to tell a mechanic how to fix a car would be a joke. I don't work at NASA, so I wouldn't tell NASA how to fly a spaceship into orbit. But it is amazing the number of people who are out there. Let's say that it's a college professor in a university that teaches you pick it. Mm -hmm. Business teaches History teaches biology. biology, and they want to delve into the area of theology and what I'm going to call biblical textual criticism, and they know absolutely nothing about it, like me trying to replace a motor in a car. Sure. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about it. So for me to talk about that I have some expertise in you know, replacing an engine in a car is disingenuous because I don't. My concern is particularly for uh, this generation of young people who have so much access to information and they literally are being told that the Bible, if you trust in it, uh, you're a fool, you're uneducated. You're, you're unintellectual. Yes, and that is not true. So on today's podcast on Real Time Truth, we want to talk about can you trust that the Bible is true. Do we have today the Bible, the Word of God, as it was given to 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years on three continents? Do we have the Word of God, or has it been mistranslated, misrepresented as God's Word because it's not reliable in that the way we got it is not reliable? And I want to explain that. And the key, I think, to all of it is just this. Is the Bible true? Yeah. And you have, to, you have to start there. What is truth? And truth is nothing more or nothing less than what corresponds with reality or what corresponds with the facts. And so you have to ask yourself, when it comes to verifying something as a truth claim as being true, does the evidence support it? And we have the evidence. Yeah. 
Now, here's what we're going to do. And, and people, people are afraid to use the Bible in explaining why the Bible is true. Sure. They think it's circular reasoning. They th but here, here's the thing, okay? It would be like me not wanting to shoot a basketball if I'm trying to explain how to shoot a basketball. I need a basketball. So in the essence of understanding the Bible, I want to read a passage of Scripture, and then we'll, 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 because this we are purporting as the truth, and then we will dissect this from a, a let's say, an intellectual standpoint. Sure so that people can understand, is the Bible true? And if I can preface what you're about to read, you don't think about this scripture that he's getting ready to read as something that was, writ was written to convince us. This was an argument that Peter wrote originally to convince people of his own day. Yes. So we're just rereading and re just throwing back into the pool of evidence again something that he was saying to others before it was even really considered canon, before it that's was right. even considered the word of God. It was a letter. Yeah, that's right. So here is the letter that Peter wrote, and we would say given to him by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And then he penned the words as God breathed those words. The, the word of God is theonoustos, theo God. Neustos to breathe. So this is this is breathed into and through Peter. And then here here is the word, Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are watch this eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, Peter saw him. Verse 17, for when he received honor, that's Jesus, and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, of course God saying that, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? This is Matthew 17. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and a morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, we're speaking of the Bible here, comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that ends chapter 1 of Second mm -hmm. Peter. And so this is, this is what we purport as truth. Now the question is, is this truth? How do we know? How do we know that the Bible that we have today is the Bible that was originally breathed into these 40 authors? Because so many people believe, and this is where the, 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 the disingenuous folks of our day will say things like this. They'll say, well, you can't trust the Bible because the Bible's just handed down by man, and it's like a telephone game. You ever play the telephone game, you know, where, where you have something that you speak into somebody's ear, and you got 20 more people lined up beside of them, and then they turn to their right and tell the person in their ear, and then that person turns and tells the next person until it gets all the way down to person 20, and what they say was said to person one is absolutely different from what was actually said. 
That's the telephone game. But that's not the Bible. Mm -mm. The Bible, the way that we have Scripture today, is person 20 goes all the way back to person number one, to the original source, mm -hmm. and gets the information. Now understand something as you're listening to this, those who are watching this. We do not have what are called the original autographs of any, let's, let's talk about the New Testament, okay? We don't have any of those, and that bothers people. Mm -hmm. We don't have the originals, we don't. What we have are manuscript copies. Mm -hmm. We have copies. But these copies are so close to the original. Some, some uh, Gary Habermas, a, a scholar of our day, says maybe the book of Galatians somewhere between 30 and 35 years from the original. But here, here's what I want people to understand. This is very critical and very important. We have manuscript copies that spread out over centuries of time that we can compare against one another to see what do they say are they similar or are they dissimilar? And this is, a, this is an area called textual criticism. And you do this for any writing of antiquity. You would do this if you were studying Homer's Iliad, if you were trying to see the veracity of, of, of Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars. You pick it, okay? When you study a writing of, that's old, we call it antiquity, mm -hmm. there are certain processes that you use in order to study to see are the copies that are purported as copies of the original, are they true? And here's what we have. We have 6,000 Greek manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. Some are whole books, some are portions of Scripture, some are only a few verses, but 6,000 manuscript copies. Now get a hold of this. We have over 17,000 manuscript copies that come from other areas other languages. of other languages. Coptic, which is Egyptian, mm -hmm. Syriac, the language of the Syrians, Ethiopic, mm -hmm. the language of the Ethiopians, and also in Latin mm -hmm. and Aramaic. Oh. So when you take these copies, 17,000 copies plus 6,000 Greek copies, you now have over 23,000 manuscript copies to, if you could lay them all down side by side and, and, and begin to study them. Okay, does what is in a Coptic manuscript copy of John 11, speaking of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at Lazarus's death, does it match a copy, a Syriac copy, from let's say 200 years removed? Are they similar? And here's what we find when we do textual criticism. And th this is not just Christians doing this. Th these are scholars and, and literary scholars who are outside. They don't even, many of them believe in the Bible or believe in Jesus. But this is a science. Textual criticism is a science. And they tell us that in essence we have between 98.5% and 99% exact representation between copies in the manuscripts. Mm -hmm. That is astounding. There is no other writing of antiquity that comes even close to this mountain of evidence that we have. Homer's Iliad, we only have a few manuscript copies, and they're, they're removed some 200 years, we believe, from the original writing. Nobody questions whether Homer wrote the Iliad, but people only question whether or not the Bible is true and whether or not the Bible is real. Yeah, same thing. Uh, with Caesar's Gallic Wars, 
Yeah. We only have about 10 copies of that, but that's how we know about his conquests. And those, the earliest ones we have of those are some 900 years after the events that they record. Yeah, here's the thing. When, when people, let's say uh, our young people go to a college university um, and they hear a professor in their, their first semester of a freshman class, and they, they hear that professor whom they look at as intellectual, as, as, as learned, as, yeah, as... He's a rock star. He's a rock star. Okay, he's too cool for school, you know what I'm saying? They hear them say, the Bible's not reliable, it's not true, it's the telephone game. And it can absolutely tear our young people out of their frame. Mm -hmm. It's what happened to me. When I went to Appalachian State as a freshman uh, back in 1987, that's like eons ago, Matthew, um, I was blown away by, by a biology professor who claimed to be, get this now, I'm not making this up, she claimed to be reincarnated, reincarnated from a cat who lived in Europe in the 1800s. I called my mom and dad that night and I said, you are paying good money for me to hear a biology professor tell me that she was reincarnated from a cat. But she said that the Bible was basically a telephone game um, and, and it's unreliable. It's a book of myths and fairy tales and it can't be trusted. Shook me to my core because I'd never been taught that uh, any sort of apologetics whatsoever. You just kind of take it for granted that that's true just yeah. because mom and dad believed it or your yes. preacher believes it. Yes. But the thing is and what we're getting at today is you you have to check it out. Yeah. You have to actually understand why do you believe it. And so um, do you want to get into the kind of the breakdown of what we have here? Let's do. Why don't you share with our audience today Bodie Balkum's definition, give his sighting, and yeah. read that Read that to them. Yes, if you guys have ever uh, dealt much with any kind of like, I don't know, so Bodie Balkum has written on a lot of things, everything from the family to discipleship to the truth of God's Word, and he has a book out there called The Ever-Loving Truth. Can Christianity Thrive in a Post-Christian Nation or a Post-Christian Era? And I encourage you to look that up. We'll put the, the link to it in the notes. And he's done tons of talks on it as well. But whenever he is asked, can I believe the Bible? He always answers with this response. The Bible is a collection, a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses. And he'll sometimes add, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they report to us the occurrence of supernatural events which took place as fulfillment of specific prophecy. And they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now that's a mouthful. There's, there's a lot to that. But we're going to break that down to you. And we've already kind of started that a little bit. And the first part he says there is that it's a reliable collection of historical documents. Peter, he said the same thing whenever he started off there in verse 16. He says, we didn't follow myths. We didn't follow fables. These accounts that were given to you, one, we were there. We're going to get to that in a minute. But they're more than just made-up stories. They're historical accounts. Yeah. And we've already started to kind of hit on that as far as, like, all the manuscript evidence. Yeah. It's, it's not something that, like you said, is the telephone game where it says once upon a time. And see, this is the thing. We, get there, we start talking about stories. Story is the most powerful teaching method and communication device of all time. Yeah. But the thing is, I can come to you and I can tell you, hey, let me tell you a story about what happened to me over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to listen to me expecting a historical account from the recent past. Yep. But if I start to tell you, I'm going to read you a story from the scriptures, somehow, even though it's the same thing, because of all the attacks on the scriptures today, we've relegated what's in this book to 
the type of story that begins with once upon a time and ends yeah. with happily ever after. It's not that. Okay, yeah. just like we said, no one questions things like Homer's Iliad or Caesar's Gallic Wars, and we have hardly no copies of those, and they were written so long after the actual events happened, how do you know they're true? But we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament alone. Yeah. Yeah. And they can be dated back as close to, as some people, some scholars believe, within 30 years of the events they record. Yeah. That's not talking about 30 years from the copy or the original manuscript that they were copied from. We're talking about 30 years from the actual events. Yeah, yeah. The Bible is an unprecedented document. Seriously, it truly is. And there's, there will never be another document. And you talk to you know, textual critics um, and they will agree to that. The, a textual critic that's not even a believer, that doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, will say that the Bible is absolutely an unprecedented document of historical veracity, mm -hmm. meaning historical truth. And so the, the, the documentary evidence that we have through all the manuscript copies, that's part one of this definition. In fact, we'll put the definition of Balcom's de definition in the show notes sure. so you can see that as well. But, but again, these are eyewitness accounts. Peter saw Jesus. Peter saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. And so these are eyewitness accounts, and they, give, they, they report the occurrence of supernatural events. Mm -hmm. Peter saw Jesus Christ alive. 1 Corinthians 15 describes that there were over 500 people at one time who saw Jesus. There's uh, Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ. He was working at the Chicago Tribune, and his wife became a believer. And uh, he, 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 just, he was an atheist. He said, this is ridiculous. So he went out on a quest to prove that the Bible was not true, that Jesus was not true. And he encountered on his uh, quest all kinds of different people. He actually interviewed a psychologist who asked, okay, can you cause a hallucination of 500 people so that they are actually hallucinating seeing a person. The same say, thing. Jesus, the, same the same hallucination. Thing. And the psychologist said, not a, not a Christian psychologist. Um, the, the movie is excellent. There's a movie out called The Case for Christ. It's a true story of Lee Strobel. But uh, the psychologist, the lady said, no, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely impossible. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. He goes and Strobel uh, interviews a doctor and says, well, maybe Jesus actually died uh, didn't die on the cross, he just kind of passed out. They call it the swoon theory, S-W-O-O-N, swoon theory. So he interviewed a doctor, and the doctor said, well, do you put credence in the American Medical Association? Lee Strobel said, yes, I do. And he said the American Medical Association said it's impossible that Jesus did not die on the cross because of the way he was scourged, beaten with a cat of nine tails, and, and what the Roman soldier would do to make sure that he was dead, sticking the spear into his pericardium, the sack around the heart, blood and water flow, showing that he actually died of asphyxiation. He, mm -hmm. he suffocated on the cross because he couldn't breathe. All of that, the American Medical Association, okay, not a, not a godly association necessarily says that Jesus died on the cross. So what do we have? All of these supernatural events purported to and then given credibility even today in the 21st century, still showing credibility. So we work our way to things that are divine rather than human in origin. This is where we, we, we look at what the scripture teaches about 
what, what we read about in, in, in Peter's gospel, that, that these eyewitness accounts that were seen give credibility. 500 people at one time and give not, credibility. And not just that, but whenever Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he said, many of these people are still alive. And what he was daring his readers to do was saying, go ask them. Yes. Tell me if I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah, that's right. Here's something else that's important to understand. The Bible is a book of fulfilled prophecies. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if I take my Bible and I'm holding my Bible, and, and here is pretty close right there, the Old Testament. And the Bible that I'm holding, that's about two-thirds of the Bible. And then here's the New Testament. The Old Testament alone has 308, according to uh, many scholars, messianic prophecies, prophecies about the coming of Jesus, prophecies that are very, very specific, that he would be born in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. that he would come from Nazareth, that he would even come out of Egypt. Yep. And people go, wait a minute, he would come out of Egypt. What is that? How did he come out of Egypt? You remember the story? Christmas is coming. You know, it'll be here before you know it. Remember, Jesus was born. Wise men show up. They're, they're looking for the king. And we know that this, according to Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was a toddler by then. The wise men started to debunk. Uh, we three kings of Orient are. But they did not come the night Jesus was born. Jesus was in a house. He was a little boy. Herod finds out about it and decides to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. You've got your fingers held up, two years old and younger. So we know Jesus was a toddler. And where did, did the angel Gabriel tell Joseph to go? Told him to go to Egypt. Yep. And they went to Egypt. They used the gold, frankincense, and myrrh as money, if you will, to get down there and to live down there. So Jesus came out of Egypt. How about that? You can't plan for that. You can't plan for that. And then the specificity of these Old Testament prophecies even go down to the fact that the Roman soldiers would gamble for Jesus' garments. So if someone wants to say, and I heard a man say this who was an atheist one time, he said, well, Jesus knew all the prophecies because he was a good Jew, and therefore while he's on the cross, he could cry out, Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, even if you want to go there, even Jesus in the state of almost shock that he was in with the trauma to his body, if you want to go there and say Jesus could just remember to do that so that he could fake all of this, what did he do? Look down off the cross at the soldiers and say, Hey, fellas, gamble for my clothes so that that can fulfill prophecy in the old... That's ludicrous. They, if, even if he'd asked them, they considered Jesus a dog. Mm -hmm. He was a criminal. Yep. And they would have done nothing he asked. They would have scoffed, which they did, and mocked him. And you know what? They gambled for his clothes, exactly how the Bible prophesied. So the Bible is a book of fulfilled prophecy. No other holy book can make that claim. The Quran cannot make that claim. The Book of Mormon cannot make that claim. We can trust the Bible because the Bible said these things are going to happen, and they did happen. And I'm telling you, as sure as Jesus came the first time and was born in Bethlehem, we're keeping time by him, he's coming again. That's right. And so we can trust what the Word of God says. This, the Bible is a historical document that is unparalleled in human history and in human precedent. And this is the thing that I hope people can grasp and feel confident and can feel solid in. 
And, and, and the way that we talked about Matthew and trying to, to help explain this to people is this idea of this little funny analogy of the monks. Why don't sure. you describe that to our folks? Sure. Well, I mean, think about it. Once we've laid out all this evidence for you, the only explanation, if the simplest explanation, as you're going to see, is that it is a divine document. But someone would look at us and say, well, no, it could have been just that some people of antiquity doctored the manuscripts to make them look like they were just this one harmonious story about the creator God and fallen man and his love for them and sending his son to die for them. They could doctor it and make them all look the same, or they could doctor the manuscripts and make it look like they are older than they really are. But let me just explain to you what would have to happen for that. And again, this is all part of uh, the material that Bodie Balkan puts out there, fantastic material, you should check it out. But the level one, first thing that they would have to do, the first part of the conspiracy, if you will, is that they would have to secure all 6,000 Greek manuscripts without getting caught, imperceptibly change them, meaning that in our modern-day vernacular, you couldn't look at the page and tell that there was white out there, okay? Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about paper that's out of a copier. We're talking about papyrus. We're talking about animal skins. We're talking about those types of manuscripts. They would have to alter those so perfectly that no one could tell that they had done so, and then like stealthy ninjas, get them put back without anyone noticing that they were gone and without noticing those changes immediately. That's just level one. But then you go to the next level. All of the copies that you just mentioned that were made in other languages, the 17,000 plus copies in Syriac and Latin and Coptic and Ethiopic, they would have to go and secure all of those. Again, stealthy ninjas without getting caught. Make the changes in those to match the lies they told in another language. Yeah, having been proficient in all of these other... Now they've got to learn Syriac. Now they've got to learn Coptic. Now they've got to learn Ethiopic. I mean, this is crazy. And again, make those changes where no one could look at that and go, is that real? Yeah. And then get them put back, again, with no one noticing and without anyone picking up on, well, that didn't say that yesterday. Yeah, and this is on three continents, folks. Yes. Okay, so you're going to have to not only learn a bunch of new languages, you're going to have to have some money, honey, to be able to get to all these places and make all these changes. Do you understand how ludicrous this is? That's just that's just the second level. Yeah. Finally, the early church fathers, they copied, they quoted the writings of, in the epistles and the New Testament so much that if even if we didn't have the other manuscripts, we could produce... Almost 100% of the New Testament just from the early church fathers' quotations. So you guessed it. These ninja monks would have to go and collect all the writings of the early church fathers as well as everything that they've done before and change all of those things to match the lies that they told in multiple languages in the Greek manuscripts and in the Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Ethiopic manuscripts make it so that no one could tell that they'd made those changes, get them all put back yeah. without anyone noticing. If you believe that, if I mean, that's a stretch. It takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe what we've just been sharing. That God uh, yeah. gave us yeah. this yeah. message. There are some, and I'll mention this briefly and then we'll begin to wrap it up. There are some who will say, well, um, there are textual variants in Scripture. And there are. I mean, I actually just flipped my Bible open. There's, there's, there's these 
contextual variance. I'm, I'm reading from uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and it says, Gadarenes. Okay, this is the story of Jesus healing the two men with demons. Okay, but then there's a little one beside of the word Gadarenes. You go down to the bottom of the page, and it says, some manuscripts says, Gergesenes. And other manuscripts say, Gerasenes. So what does that mean? Different ways of saying the, the, the name of the town. That's not a problem. That, but because there are different people that in different communities that, that call the town by a different name. But there are people out there who will disingenuously claim yes. that not all the manuscripts agree, and by that, all they're referring to is just how some people refer to a specific town. Yes. So when you, when you study textual criticism, and this is what we'll say about the variants in Scripture, the variants are, the, 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 let's take the New Testament. We've got 98.5% to 99% accuracy, according to textual critics, okay? In other words, that it's, it's exact when you're comparing copy to copy to copy. So you've got this percent or percent and a half. So what do you have? You've got a placement of a comma. You've got the, the, the ordering of words. Mm -hmm. One version may say, one, one manuscript copy may say Jesus Christ. Another manuscript copy may say Christ Jesus. Does that change anything? Changes nothing. And so what we have with the, with, with the textual variance of a word or a comma or a spelling changes nothing of doctrine. Absolutely nothing of doctrine. And that is being genuine mm -hmm. in discussing the, the variance in Scripture. And so if you're listening to a college professor, you're listening to some rock star, some, some whomever, politician that says that the Bible is not true, I would, I would dare you to ask them, when have they studied, like me, in trying to put a car engine into a vehicle? They haven't. All they're doing is, is parroting what they've heard. Because you know what, folks? The reason people don't want to believe that the Bible is true is because the Bible actually holds us accountable. Yep. The Bible holds us accountable for something called sin. We are accountable to a holy and righteous God. And because of that, we are absolutely unable and unworthy to stand in his presence. And so God loved us so much knowing that, that we were sinners going back to our ancestors, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who blew it because they wanted power over the knowledge of God. We have a Savior who came. Mm -hmm. who was born in Bethlehem, who came out of Nazareth and Egypt, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's as alive at this moment as I am, as Matthew is, as you are, those who are listening and watching. And so we say to you today, the Bible, can you believe it? Yes, because it is unprecedented in its veracity when you look at it as a writing of antiquity that is true. And so I'm grateful for that. Last comment I'll make. Some guy said a long time ago, I was reading, he said, well, the Bible is like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. We only have 990 pieces. That's a lie. We actually have about 1,100 pieces. We've got more than enough to make the puzzle work. We've got extra pieces because we've got all these, we've got 23,000-plus manuscript copies. We, we have more than enough to put the puzzle together, and then some. Mm -hmm. I would actually argue we could put the thousand-piece puzzle together probably a thousand times. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And that is the real-time truth about the Bible. Can you trust it? Absolutely you can trust it. 
I don't know if you can tell that we're passionate about this or not, but this I know has been kind of a fast-paced episode. Uh, but if you've missed something, the great thing is there's that pause button. There's that you can drag that little dot back on your screen. Uh, but really think about this. And as Kevin already mentioned, the people who make the claims that kind of throw you, whether you hear it in a classroom, whether you hear it on uh, the, a news report from someone, whether you hear it on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, ask yourself the question. Is the person making those claims actually qualified to make those claims? Yes, excellent point. Don't just imbibe what they're saying. Don't just buy what they're selling just because they're important to someone. Yeah. Okay, just because they have letters after their name doesn't mean that they've given qualified time to studying that message and to studying documents of antiquity. Excellent. Make sure that you are listening to the right people. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been another episode of Real Time Truth. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Before we go, um, I know that I'm really enjoying this cooler weather. Yeah. Um, how much longer is this going to last? I mean, I know you already told me it's not going to last. Yeah. Well, you know, interesting, the models have changed some, and, and I think that, that really we're going to see a little bit more of an average type of temperature flow, I think, now going through October. Things are, it's, it's very, it's complicated. The, there's a thing called the Madden-Julian Oscillation, and it, it reports as to what's happening out in the ocean. And the way some things are happening now, it looks like we may be having more normal temperatures. If you look at the temperatures for October, they're going to show as above average because it was so hot early on. Sure. But I think it's going to kind of level out. And here's the issue we're having, though, is we're not having a lot of rain. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a drought, particularly here in western North Carolina. So I'm praying, Lord, send us some rain. And, um, I, you know, but right now, you know, we're not seeing a whole lot of... Uh, you know, sometimes we get fronts and tropical storms that will even come through this time of year. We're just, the Atlantic's kind of quiet, so um, we'll just have to wait and see. But, you know, we are, I think, done with the 90s, so we can, Praise be, the Lord. We can be happy with that. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you all again for joining us. Uh, I'm Matt McNeil. And I'm Pastor Kevin Brown. Thank you for watching and listening today. Take care.